Please note, this podcast contains discussions related to death and suicide. These topics, narratives, insights and discussions may be distressing or triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Dr. Mary Cassidy and I was a state pathologist in Ireland from 2004 to 2018. Welcome to my podcast, Life in Death, brought to you by Go Loud. I'll be taking you through the world of pathology and forensics, digging deep into the roles of experts in crime, from the crime scene to the law courts. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Joan Dean, Vice Chair of Advocates for Victims of Homicide, colloquially known as ADVIC. When we think of victims of homicide, we immediately think of the deceased person, but these crimes have far-reaching effects on their family and friends. So welcome, Joan Dean. Um, you are the Vice Chairperson of ADVIC and you're one of the founder members. So welcome to our podcast. I think you're going to talk to myself and to Paul and give us a bit of an insight into what happened to you that brought you to this place. Thank you very much, Mary. Um, well, I, I became involved in this whole area, I suppose, in, on the 1st of February 2003, when my son was was murdered, um, I suppose following the breakup of a relationship, you know, when it happened, we were thrown completely into another world, a world that we knew nothing about. Everything about it was so far outside our experience that, I mean, you don't even know what you need to know at that time. You yeah. just sort of, you're functioning. And it's, it's, I can remember at the time feeling like I was in the middle of a tornado that might spin me right out of my, my body, if you like, at any time. I, it just felt so awful. I think it was about maybe four or five months after Russell died that I was at a point in my life where I, I didn't know if I could survive. And I, I had this great need to see or meet another family who had been through it because I somehow felt if I could see someone that survived it, I might know that I could survive it too. And I contacted what was then victim support in Ireland and asked if I could meet another family. And I suppose serendipitously, they um, they were commencing a bereavement course the following week and they, they included me in it. So that was where I met a number of other families who had been through the same thing. And there was such a connection between all of us, that when the, the bereavement course ended, we stayed together and we knew that, well, I didn't know at that point because I was very early on in the process. Some of the people I met had been through the process at an earlier stage. So we knew um, from our uh, talking to each other what was lacking in the system, how difficult it had been for people to, to journey through it. And we thought it shouldn't be that way, you know. There really is no reason for it to be like that. And as you say, um, at that time, in the, certainly in the case of a homicide, the, the family of the victim had no no place in the process at all. You know, that train would have left the station without us. Uh, we didn't need to be there, but of course you have to be there. Out of that grew the need for us as a group at that time we felt this need that we need to do something. Something needs to change. 
Um, and really, I suppose our, our aim at that stage was just to advocate for change that would bring more balance into the system and would balance the unfairness that, that appeared to be there. So that's how Advic came about. Um, initially, we thought we would just advocate for changes in the criminal justice system. But we knew, again, from our own experience that professional counselling was very important. Um, I remember going to see a counsellor myself and I didn't go anymore after maybe three visits because I felt I was upsetting her with what I had to tell her. Yeah. And um, that wasn't doing either of us any good. So we we then devised uh, this workshop where we, we had qualified therapists and we trained them over a, a series of uh, workshops over a period of, say, 10 months. And Mary, you were one of the people who helped us with that. And we took our therapists through all of the stages of the criminal justice system, from the, the police, um, state pathologist, the coroner, judges, everyone. And it, it was really helpful. And we've, we've moved on from that now. And we have a panel of therapists uh, throughout the country who work with our families. Just recently, last year, we began um, children's counselling, which is very specialised as well. Mm, yes. But of course, the pandemic has, you know, interfered with that a little bit. The demand is rising, sadly, uh, for children's counselling. All of our counselling at the moment, because of COVID, is happening online. And that's fine for an adult. But to counsel children online, their young children, is, is not appropriate. No. So what we do in that case, um, our counsellors will uh, coach the parent on how to help the child. And so that's how we're managing at the moment with it. But yeah, it's 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 been it's been a journey. Yes, I mean I think when you talk about counselling people it's a kind of a generic term and I think counsellors in some areas come in with the, the right intentions but they don't have that background and the experiences that you and the other families have been through is completely alien to them. And it's like anybody else, like any of us talking to you, we immediately go, oh, how would I cope myself in that situation? And so the counsellor's on a back foot as well. I mean, I can remember, this is, I don't want to trivialise it, but at one point, and now routinely, a lot of the agencies who are involved in death investigation get counselling. And I do remember them sending us to a counsellor. And I got the same experience as you had, that the, the counsellor that was speaking to us as, as pathologists could not understand why we would even want to be involved in any of it. And she was just, and I said, look, dear, maybe just go home and, you know, we're, we're we're coping. We know what we're doing. We signed up for this, you know. So don't worry about us. And I thought, dear God, this poor woman is going to have to have counselling after this because she <laughs> she couldn't get her head round about why we would want to be involved in something that is so awful to everyone else. Um, so coming across somebody who'd actually it happened to, whose family was involved, I could just imagine that poor counsellor that you went to and, you know, yeah. God bless her or him. Uh, it must have been quite traumatic. So it's, it has to be very tailored and specialised to the needs of the, the, the families. And as you say, with children, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how you go about dealing with children in these circumstances, but it must be incredibly difficult. It certainly is. 
John, when you when you started off, you were saying that initially you were just looking for change, and in your own experience, what did you think needed to be changed? What, how did you feel about the process as you were going through it? Where did you see the hiccups or the areas that you thought we could be included or we could be getting more information or we could have a bigger say in what happens next? What, what were the things that you were initially thinking about? Well, the, the first thing I think we, we all realised, um, and I, I certainly realised it very early on in the process, was how difficult it was to access information, basic information. Communication, I suppose, was important because you don't know anything about where you find where you have found yourself. You're in a complete, it, it's like being in the dark with a blindfold on as well. So you do need information. And at that time, there, there, there weren't family liaison officers assigned. Although in our case, we were very lucky, the superintendent who was in charge of the, the, the investigation was extremely helpful. And in fact, the guards became our best friends during that period. But um, information, I think, was the first thing that was lacking. And then after that, I suppose the realization that you don't have a role in the whole process, you don't have a voice, certainly. And we, we, we did think that that could be balanced without interfering with the rights of the, the, the accused person. Thankfully, since 2015, when the EU Directive on Victims' uh, Rights uh, came into being, and subsequently in Ireland, the Victims of Crime Act 2017, that has changed. And the family of um, a homicide victim now is classified legally as victim. So you have some, some basic rights. Um, which which is a change, and it's very, very welcome, you know. Most of us have had no dealings with the law up until that point. You know, you've, you know, you've been good law-abiding citizens. You know, you, the, you only see Gardaí on the, on the street. You've never been in a courtroom. And even walking it into the criminal courts is fairly daunting. I find it daunting, and I've been doing it for 30-odd years. And you're walking in there and you have no idea even who the players are. You know, we know the judge because that's the person in the highest seat looking down on us. But who's the prosecution? Who's the defence? Where the, uh, it's, And I mean, I've been in the court myself and it's uh, with families and with people who have just come in just to listen because the courts are open. And I've had people tap me on the shoulder and say, said to me, Who's that and what are they doing? And I've, sometimes I've had to say, well, I'm not actually quite sure who the, who the little people in the front of the judge are. I don't really not know very much about what they do. In the olden days, when I first started, you see them clicking away in typewriters and I thought, oh, they're taking down the information. What they're doing now, I have no idea. But it's even just coming into that environment is very, very daunting. And when you're dealing with death, usually most of us, you know, you're dealing with trying to come to terms with a death and the the grief process and you're trying to organise funerals and you're trying to, you know, get in touch with people. But this is a whole new ball game. This is something, you know, you can't even content yourself to do something like that. You're you know, you're 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 it's taken out of your hands. There's this process going on and it's stopping you Coming to terms with a death, I would have thought, now you can tell me I'm, I'm completely wrong, but I just feel that 
the system just doesn't allow you to progress your own emotions because you're wrapped up in trying to deal with something else. You're, you're not wrong at all, Mary. Um, I mean, I, I, I can remember feeling very strongly that I was I was absolutely shocked to discover, you know, that the, the, the criminal justice system, if you like, wasn't there to support me when I when I needed it. You know, it, it was a stark realization because, like you say, as a tax paying law abiding citizen, you think when something goes wrong that the system will support you. But it was very shocking to discover that in this case, the system really was designed, I suppose, to um, support the, the, the perpetrator. Or that's how it, certainly how it felt at the time. And every, everything about the, 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 the process was, is alien to you and certainly was alien to us. Um, I, I remember at a pre-trial meeting, and I mean, even, even in the first, it was two years before it came to trial almost, but in the first few months of journeying through, we learned so much because you had to, you know. But I do recall at a pre-trial meeting, the prosecuting counsel, one thing she said to us at the time, which stuck in my mind and was so prophetic as it turned out, uh, when we were leaving, she said, just remember, anything can happen in these cases. Your, your case is cut and dried. There, there are no corners to it. It should be very straightforward, but anything can happen in a courtroom. And my God, was she prophetic. Because the first trial we had, it collapsed after a few days because um, one of the newspapers, one of the tabloid newspapers, had a headline that said three brutes killed, whatever the headline was. But they described them as three brutes. And the word brute has not, had not been used in evidence. Therefore, it was, you know, a big problem. And because there were three accused in, in our case, there were three defense teams. So that made it even more difficult as well. And um, I think the Sun newspaper was, was fined 100,000 euros for contempt of court and the trial collapsed. And that was horrendous. But the next trial that happened was maybe eight, nine months after that. And the most shocking thing that happened there was on one of the days, quite suddenly, this brown bag appeared. I had no idea what it was, a brown uh, cardboard paper bag. And out of it was pulled the weapon that killed my son, which was a pickaxe. And I gasped and I cried, not very loudly. I'm, I'm not really given to mm -hmm. displays of emotion, but I did certainly cry. And the, one of the defence team was on his feet asking for the trial to collapse because I was trying to influence the jury. And that became, I suppose, their, their reason for being. They monitored my reactions right throughout the whole trial. And every time a tear came down my, my face, he was on his feet again, you know, with the result that I was a wreck by the end of it. Oh, God. That trial was um, found one guy guilty of manslaughter and the, the one guy was acquitted and they couldn't come to a decision on the third one. So we had to have another trial some months later. And the same thing went on. I, my reactions were being monitored all the time to such an extent that the, the, the superintendent advised me not to be in the court on the day that you were giving your evidence because obviously it might be upset 
And I'll always remember how kind you were because we, I, I, I was in the, the victim's room, such as it was at the time, and um, having a cup of tea with the court supporters. And you came into the room and the only question I wanted to ask you was, you know, would my son have suffered? But I couldn't get the words out. But somehow you knew what I needed to ask. And you told me. And you said to me, the first blow would have been catastrophic. And that was all I needed to know at the time. And I, I, I found you extremely kind. Wow, that's that's very powerful. Very, very powerful. Um, as, 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 a, as someone sitting on the sideline, Joan, uh, I, 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 I just, I'm stunned with what you've just described happened to you in courts. It, it was awful. It, it is, Absolutely and to think awful. that they were scrutinising you throughout the trial, to to get some sort of an angle on your grief as as a as a way of collapsing the trial. Uh, and the awful thing about that is, there's no need for that to happen. That's not something that should happen. It didn't, you know, no. it didn't add anything to their case. It it just. I, I, I could, ne could never explain, you know, or understand why it should even happen. And it should never happen to anyone. And did the judge intervene to... to... In, in each case, I mean, there, there were two, two different judges involved. And in each case, the judge told them to get real. What did they expect the mother of um, a murder victim to do at, at certain points? And... The thing is, other people were crying in that courtroom. I mean, the accused's families were crying, and that was fine. That was fine. But I remember my, my older son said to me at one point, for, for some reason, Mom, they, he just does not want you in that courtroom. Whatever it was, I don't know. And that was only one of the defense teams, not all three of them, you know. It just seemed to be... It just wasn't a very nice tactic, but it 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 had such a profound effect on me that I was I was scared in that building, and it, I recently had occasion to pass by it, and I could feel the chill coming over me. It just, you know, I, it's where I spent my darkest hours, I suppose. Unbelievable, and it's unbelievable that families could be treated in such a callous manner in court. I mean, what do you expect? I mean, I, I, to be, although having said that, I'm always amazed how stoic families can be under the circumstances. And sometimes, I mean, I, I, I fully expect people to be sobbing and crying. I, I expect them to be screaming and shouting. And, you know, I, I just... That's what, you know, you think that would be a, a mother's normal reaction is to rail against what's happened to your child yeah. and to be to be criticised for showing any emotion at all. I mean, it's yeah. devastating. Yeah. And it comes back to the grief process again. Yeah, it, 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 it's horrific. And, you know, the, the, the whole process is bad enough. But for something like that to happen, I would hate to think it happened to anybody else. It, um, it, it was so, so distressing. And I, I honestly think, looking back, the, the thing that got me through three murder trials was Rescue Remedy. I was consuming bottles of it <laughs> to try and keep myself calm. In the absence of gin and tonic at the time. Joan, did, did you find when you were talking with, with, with the other families um, and, and, and in your role now with Advic, 
do you caution people about that sort of experience that they may be sub, you know subjected to well i suppose we we would do but very often paul we don't we don't get to meet families until after a trial because you know they they're not ready they're not ready to talk to other people but if they did come to us we would we would explain you know what the the process is like but generally people come to us after the trial because that's when they they, they, they need counseling i suppose you know so uh, are you completely separate then for the the agency which gives uh, victim support at court yes yes they they, they are um Victim Support at Court, which is a wonderful service, absolutely wonderful. We just really provide the counselling and we, we do some advocacy still, you know. Every second year we hold a memorial service for victims of homicide. And that's that's a very, very meaningful event. Um, we're hoping this year we can do it in September, but still a bit up in the air about the, the COVID guidelines, so we're not sure whether we can do it or not. Yes, of course but we're hoping to. And it's a great opportunity for families to come together. And it's not a religious service, it's, it's just a memorial. And um, it's, it's also um, a place where they can feel safe because they know that they're among peers, if you like. And it's, it's a networking opportunity as well. They get to meet other families and friendships are formed. Um, so, you know, and it's the goodness that comes out of a situation that, that, that keeps you going, really, you know. Well, nobody understands what you've been through other than another family who's been through the same. Yeah, peer-to-peer support, I suppose, is 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 very important. Like we always say, Advic is like a club that you never want to join. Exactly, yeah. It is important to, to see and to, to be able to connect with other people who've had a similar journey. And Joan, when when you do meet with you know with the all the all the other families, is there a common thread that runs through each of you when you're when you're talking? People can express different emotions at different times. One person might be at at a stage where anger is uppermost, the uppermost uh, emotion for them. But we would understand that, and so would all of the other families. It could be sorrow. It could be. It could be bitterness, it could be anything. And yeah, we would experience all of those emotions in people, but we understand them. And I think with through counseling, you know, they're helped through, because it is a process and it is a journey. Other people who've been through the same thing, they feel safe to express them. Whereas with family and friends, which would normally be your support system, well, the family, number one, they're going through the same experience themselves so you can't expect to get support from people who are themselves traumatized and with the best will in the world your friends even your close friends they do reach a point where they expect you to be moving on now you know and it's not something you ever move on from you merely find a way to accommodate it into your life i mean i think even in a family people move on at different rates as well because I've met up with families and some parts of the family are saying, look, it's time to move on, you know, give yourself a shake, you know, like we can't just stay in this area of limbo forever, whereas people are still grieving. It must be that 
people will be looking for your services at different stages. You know, some somebody might want access to counselling within a few weeks and other people, it might take them years to get round to the, you know, thinking about maybe I should now, you know, maybe this is long enough, maybe I need to go and, and speak to somebody about this. How does it, how does that happen, you know, and how, and how often do you see people coming in very early and how often do you see them waiting and waiting and waiting till it's almost, you know, a cry of despair? Well, you're, you're very right there, Mary. It's, it's, it's a very individual thing. And I think a trauma like homicide changes the whole dynamic of a family and how they interact with each other. So even within a family, different members will need counselling at different points. You know, um, we, we can certainly help people no matter what point they come to us at. Um, some people will want to come in the first weeks after a homicide. You know, I, I would leave that to the professionals to decide, you know, or to decide how to help those people. We've had families who've come to us maybe 20 years after a homicide and they've only now felt the need or felt ready to, to come forward. So whatever it is, we can, we can, our counsellors can help them. The whole dynamic in a family changes and people expect they expect you to get better at a set point in time and that's that's not how it works you know you 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 I don't know if you ever get better I don't know if I've ever gotten better but you just find a way to accommodate it into your life and not let the awfulness define who you are I think yeah you get better at managing it you might not get better but you get better at managing it in a way it gets less raw I suppose as time goes on you know, but the, you know that that truck can hit you at any time, and can still do it. I mean, it's it's over eighteen years since Russell was killed, and there are days still, usually when I'm driving in the car on my own, when the truck will hit me, not not literally, um, and suddenly you're weeping, you know, and you can be at traffic lights and you get a very odd look from the car beside you because tears are flowing down your face and. You may not even have a tissue at hand to, to dry them, but it, it happens and you just let it happen. Roll with it, you know. In, in the past, Joan, when people, when people have had the, 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 the unfortunate, to put it at its kindest, uh, of a homicide in the family, they would have maybe gone to the, the priest or their family doctor for help. Does that still, do, do, do those people still have a role to play or is modern society all totally moved away from that uh, older traditional way? I, I think they would still have a role, Paul, but probably finding a priest now might be quite difficult. They're, they're not too thick on the ground, I don't think, anymore. Um, but yeah, pe- people will, will I, I think as human beings, we take comfort where we can find us, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think counselling people through or after homicide can be very, very um, delicate because people are very damaged, you know. I mean, we are all very damaged after homicide. And, I mean, there's, there's no nice way to put it. You, you are very damaged and traumatised. And I think, you know, yeah, people have to be conscious of the fact that you don't want to do or say anything to add to that trauma, you know. A priest or a doctor, 
I don't know what they can do to help, you know, except be there and listen, I suppose. Can I tell you that we weren't taught in med school how to deal with it? No, no. And you wouldn't expect to be, you know. And I mean, certainly in Ireland, um, in the last, I suppose, 40 years, homicide has become a thing, you know. Because of, you know, it's this... I'm meeting people all the time in and out of courts. I just assumed that you were there right from the very beginning, but obviously, how do, how do people contact you then? How do people contact ADVIC? Well, the way we operate, we, ne- we never contact a family. Um, when, when, uh, when a murder is reported, um, our chairperson will contact the superintendent in the area that, that are uh, doing the investigation and we send to the to the superintendent our information booklet and our contact details, and they pass it on. The, the family liaison officer will pass that on to the family. And when they're ready, the family will contact us. Um, so we're available to them right from the start, but we leave it to them to contact us because I don't think it's right to intrude on a family in in you know at a time like that when they may not be ready to receive information. So we, we, again, I think that came from our own experience. About two weeks after my son was killed, I got a call from a woman who right. said she was from victim support, which I'd never heard of up until that point. I was highly suspicious about it. I thought, who is this person? Why is she coming to me? Um, and the woman was very nice and came with mm-hmm. lots of leaflets and information and all of that. but. It, it, it did have a, an upsetting effect on me, you know. It unsettled me at yes. the time. Yeah. And I I suppose my suspicious mind, I, I rang victim support at the time to check her out. And um, she was a very nice woman. But I just, I, I felt very strongly from the start that, you know, cold calling is not, not a good idea when somebody is traumatised. I mean, God bless you, you bore the brunt of the criminal justice system by having to go to court on three separate occasions. The delay in the process getting to court, how did that affect you? Uh, You know, Russell dies in 2003 and yet you're not getting to court for another couple of years. I mean, how do you cope with that? And, 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 you know, what happens in, in, in that in between time the delay is 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 quite damaging i think to 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 any, anyone you know in the old adage that says justice delayed is justice denied in terms of be, being in that position it's horrible your life is on hold practically you know everything is related to this upcoming trial which you know is going to happen but you have no idea when and you know, I suppose in our case, there was no terrible long investigation. It was quite straightforward. But you still had to wait and wait. You could make no plans. You could do nothing. And you found, you, well, we found that, you know, people didn't know how to be with us at a certain point because we now were this family who were in a box and anything that might be said to us could upset us. And, this is how people felt, I think, that they couldn't approach us. And sometimes they they didn't know what to say. And sometimes they said all the wrong things. Yeah. But because it came from a good place, you, 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 you didn't react to it. But waiting and waiting and waiting was horrible. 
even the waits in between the trials, when we now began to understand how things were working, was horrendous. I can remember, I think we kind of switched off a bit and became numb. You, you numb yourself because you have to. And how did your other children numb themselves? How did they cope? I, I, I just had two sons, Paul. Um, I'd say it's very difficult to know. Um, we, we, we never really sat down as a family and talked about how we felt, all three of us, I suppose. Um, I was very conscious of, um, I know my husband and, and my son at, at the, in the very early stages were very angry. And I, I suppose, the mother in me kicked in. I was very conscious of their anger. Um, and I was sort of minding, minding that in a way, I suppose, because I didn't want them to do anything, you know, that might make things worse. And I know uh, one of Russell's friends was very angry as well. And I was very conscious that I didn't want to any of them to take anything, any action that might harm them. Yeah. So I, I was very much minding my reaction so that I wouldn't inflame their anger anymore. So I suppose that kept me busy and kept me going at the time, having to think about them rather than myself, you know. It does change the dynamic of your family, absolutely, because each, each member of the family is dealing with the same trauma, but in a different way. And you're not all at the same stage of the process at the same time. So it can cause a lot of difficulty for for quite a while, you know, and it certainly did in, in, in our case. But thankfully, we came through it. it you know, I suppose it, it changes you. Certainly it changes you. It, you don't come out of it or come through it the same person you were going in. Um, I, I, I think I, I often think back and feel that I grew up since 2003, because I know I've changed. But I think the thing is, as a mother myself, no, as a mother myself, I can understand what mothers want to know. And it's usually the very simple things. And it's strange, usually when I'm speaking to families, it's the mother that comes forward. Your father sort of stand in the background and I'm sure they want to ask questions but don't want to be seen to be the one asking the questions. But mothers just want to know and and more of it's about did they suffer? Was it was it you know, was it rapid or whatever? And to be perfectly honest, in the old days, in the olden days we were doctors were very paternalistic and we used to say, Oh, everything you know and if you've been in court and you've listened to us giving evidence, you'll know that it wasn't a simple, straightforward, whatever it was. And so you have to be honest with people and explain things to people. And I think people appreciate that. And people do. I mean, I always say that whatever I do is to make sure that the families get the information that, that they need. They might not want a lot of it, but sometimes they need certain information that is just enough at the time enough at the time. You're absolutely right, Mary, because, you know, the thing has happened and nothing is going to change that and nothing is going to make it any easier. So I think that's where truth and honesty becomes really important because you just need to know, you, you need the information. And 
you can't dress it up. You can't make it nice. No. You can't put no. balloons and ribbons on it. You know, it is what it is. And uh, but I think to hear the information from somebody who is genuine and who is who understands is really important. It's not cold. It wasn't cold in your case. It wasn't cold or clinical. It was human and honest and truthful. I had also seen a copy of your report uh, before the trial, um, which, yeah, yeah. I could understand why the superintendent yeah. said not to be there on the day. Um, and we'd had an interim inquest, which was horrendous. Um, yeah, I mean, hearing the information the first time was awful. Um, by the time the trials happened, I suppose, um, I had read the report as well, which, which had prepared me a little bit. But even having seen all the facts and having read them and having been through an interim inquest, I still had that one basic question that I needed an answer to. I needed to know how long Russell would have suffered for. And you, you got that straight away. Reading autopsy reports, even on total strangers, is, is quite... Uh, you need a strong, strong stomach, strong personality, strong psychological um, mindset to, 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 to read them. It's, it's, it's really quite uh, scary. And, and uh, if, you're not, if you're not familiar with the language, it can become really quite shocking and intimidating. I wonder how many of the people that you would help, do they find that they can't even go to the point of reading the autopsy reports or even listening to the autopsy d details in court? I don't think they do. I, I think most families probably don't see them. Um, it's not something that automatically you're given. I can't even remember how it came about that I got it, but I did. I think I asked for it and I, I was given it by the coroner, if memory serves me correctly. But most families won't. And I'm not sure whether they would want to. I think, given the time again, I'm not sure I would would want to even. I think a summary is perfectly sufficient. Yeah, I would agree. Going forward now, Joan, what are the other changes that you would be pressing for in the the system of dealing with homicides going through the courts? Well, we one of the things that the ADVIC has been advocating for since 2010 is that we believe that there ought to be a victim's ombudsman or a, a victim's commissioner because there ought to be one, one identifiable office, agent, agency, whatever you want to call it, where victims can, you know, get information through or can make a complaint to because at the moment you know if, if a victim feels that their rights have been breached and now that the family of a homicide victim is legally classed as a victim they have certain rights and if there's a breach there there's nowhere to go with that so we feel very strongly that um, a commissioner or an ombudsman for victims ought to be in place I'm also on the board of the Victims' Rights Alliance in Ireland. They're fighting very strongly for this as well. I was actually on a webinar um, this week, a Victims' Court Europe uh, webinar, 
And one of the speakers there was Sue O'Sullivan. She was the uh, Victims Ombudsman of Canada. And she's now retired, but she, she's a very powerful woman, you know. Mm. She had information about how victims' uh, rights were dealt with in Canada. And it's amazing. It's amazing. And the difference it can make to a person's recovery, I think, to feel that they have, you know, that they have rights, number one, and that they mm-hmm. there is somewhere they can go for information. And communication is channeled through, you know, a commissioner or an ombudsman can be very important, I think. We also would look at areas like sentencing and um, compensation for victims. You know, there are lots of issues around those um, subjects. Criminal injuries compensation is is a big, big issue, uh, certainly here in Ireland. Um, I I, I think the Minister for Justice is looking at... um, reviewing it at the moment and certainly it needs a lot of reviewing his families are experiencing a lot of difficulty in in accessing um even in applying for it the the application process is quite difficult well it looks like you've got you've you've still got a lot on your plate and you've got lots of you've got a lot to still give to the system and and to keep going with advic i mean it's amazing that um you're managing to keep pressing on sadly there would be new people coming along all the time unfortunately you know um and i i think you know there'll always be something that will need to be um championed some issue will need someone to to work for the rights for people you know and we have some excellent people working with us and we're always available to help families I know, it's incredible. I mean, I've always found it incredible that at the worst time in people's lives, they they find the strength to, to think of other people, uh, not wanting them to end up in the same position that they've been in. Um, so th- thank you so much for coming and speaking to us today, Joan. It's been marvellous and, you know, more power to the, your elbow, as they say in Glasgow. You know, keep going because um, we need people like you and people who are honest and truthful and are trying to to improve the situation for others it's been marvelous speaking to you i'm uh, i'm just i'm just overwhelmed actually thank you so much for coming and joining us bye it's been a pleasure mary thank you so much and thank you for what you do you've been listening to life and death with me dr mary cassidy this podcast is brought to you by go loud Produced by Jason Ford and Rosie Putnam from Mabel Productions, edited by Rosie, and with music by Sasha Putnam, presented by me and Paul Carson. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps us. And be sure to tell a friend if you like what you heard. Go Loud is the home of Irish podcasts. Whether you're looking for a gripping true crime story, in-depth conversations or some practical life advice, the Go Loud app is the place for you.